Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis in international affairs. In this episode, we explore the fallout from the recent announcement of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. The deal, which was reached between Iran and the permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany in 2015, eases sanctions on Iran in exchange for a reduction in its nuclear capabilities and allowing inspection of its nuclear sites by the International Atomic Energy Agency. With the announced withdrawal, there is now a scramble by the remaining signatories to salvage the deal without US involvement. Meanwhile, the withdrawal also casts a shadow over any future negotiations with North Korea on the same subject. To gain more insight into the impact of U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, I spoke with Dr. Simon Palomar, a research fellow of global security and politics at the Center for International Governance Innovation. Dr. Palomar, thank you so much for joining us this evening on Policy Talks. Hi, Mitch. It's, uh, it's a pleasure, and thanks for the invitation to join So I want to start with perhaps the most fundamental question for this topic, which is, why is the U.S. withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it's it's one that divides people, frankly. And, and I'm going to give kind of a a typical wishy-washy answer in that you know there are probably several things at play, and you know part of the trick of understanding why it's happening is figuring out how much you want to weight these different different explanations. But I think you know first and foremost, we can't dismiss the idea that. Um, American withdrawal from the JCPOA is at least partially a domestic political issue, right? The Iran nuclear deal, I mean, it was one of President Barack Obama's foreign policy achievements, and uh, President Trump has um, designed a lot of his policy agenda agenda around dismantling um, Obama's uh, achievements. Was it, you know, an ugly, it was a way to generate enthusiasm among the Republican base. Uh, there's still, you know, Barack Obama is still a divisive figure in the United States. Is it ugly politics to an extent? Yes, but that is what the, the president campaigned on, was sort of rolling back what he saw as the errors of uh, Obama's eight years in office. So since this was something the president promised to get out of this deal, this is something that's relatively easy for him do because the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is not a treaty, it's not a legal agreement, making it quite easy for the president to unilaterally hold the United States out. You know, I think we have to at least assume that this is in part fulfilling a campaign promise. It's going to be uh, something he can point to when he's on the uh, when he's on the campaign trail, leading up to November, midterms, midterms, endorsing Republican candidates in the House and the Senate, he can point to this saying, look, this administration is getting things done. You sent Republicans to Washington. They're going to support me. I'm following through on my promise. So that's kind of a dry answer. You know, it's domestic politics. That's, and that's probably part of it. However, the Joint Conference of Planned Act, I mean, it was also, it was also structured, you know, fundamentally as an arms control agreement. It wasn't meant to change every facet of Iran's foreign policy. It wasn't a, a so-called grand bargain that would see Tehran wants to reset their foreign policy after you know, 36 years of animosity. It was designed really simply to put a free 
freeze on some of Iran's nuclear activity, subject Iran to you know, almost unprecedented you know, verification and monitoring, and by the United States and its allies' time to figure out what do we do about Iran in the long term. We've got some fundamental differences of opinion on a number of issues. We've got some fundamentally incompatible interests with Iran. We don't know how to resolve these through whatever policies, you know, whether intelligence, armed forces, we don't know how to solve these, but at least putting a freeze on the nuclear activity, it, it buys us some time to force us to running against the clock as much. So with the position of the United States on, on the deal uh, with Iran regarding its nuclear capabilities and, and opening its nuclear sites to inspections, um, can this deal survive without active U.S. involvement? Yeah, that's, of course, what the European Union is trying to figure out right now, what Russia is trying to figure out, what the Chinese are trying to figure out. Now, the simple answer is yes. There's nothing that says that inspections of international inspections of Iran's nuclear sites cannot continue you know, without American involvement. As I said before, it wasn't a legal deal that all these countries signed. It's, it's a political deal. It's flexible. And I think it's always been understood that there are going to be some disagreements um, throughout the lifetime of the deal about how it's enforced, what constitutes violation, etc. I think the big problem, that all that being said, the big problem right now is that the quid pro quo in the... Uh, in the JCPOA, it was the relaxation and the waiving of U.S. sanctions, particularly right. U.S. financial sanctions. So, without U.S. involvement, um, you know, it, it really does start to beg the question: What's Iran getting in return for cooperating? So we have to remember that uh, Iran did. All evidence points to the fact that Iran did have an active nuclear weapon program into the early 2000s. But their activities after that period, a lot of the activities that are regulated by the JCPOA, these were essentially legal activities. They're not things we necessarily wanted Iran to be doing. They're sensitive activities, what we call civilian activities, right? Things that can be, that have a civilian purpose, but can be used in a, a nuclear weapons program as well. So right now, Let's say, you know, we start to see some European firms pull out of Iran or now they're going to pull out. What's the quid pro quo? Can, will Iran continue to abide by the deal if they're not getting that sanctions relief they wanted? And I think the bet from the Americans is that, no, it, it can't stand without the United States being involved. Is there is there an ability, in your estimation, for the EU to effectively shield EU-based companies from U.S. sanctions in an effort to preserve this deal and an effort to to continue active trade between the EU and and uh, non-EU signatories to this to this agreement and Iran. Now, well, there's certainly things the EU can attempt, and I'm sure as you know, you and your listeners have have um, followed the story. I noticed last week, um, European Commission uh, President uh, Jean-Claude Juncker announced that the EU would be adding um, the United States' Iran sanctions to what's called the EU's blocking regulation. 
Now, the blocking regulation was originally uh, drafted, and I want to say 1996, and it was essentially, uh, it, it is EU law that essentially says European companies, European nationals, who um, don't have to, not only do they not have to abide by American sanctions on Cuba, but are in fact instructed not to do so. Um, and this was an attempt to push back against this American idea that, you know, we can impose uh, sanctions on pretty much anybody we want. We're not just going to impose sanctions on Cuba, for example, and say Americans can't trade with Cubans. But if you trade with Cubans or you do business with a Cuban company, we're going to do something like deny you access to uh, American banks, whatever it is, we're going to hit you in the pocketbook for doing deals with Cuba. So the EU passed this regulation years ago. So there's now talk, and we've begun to see efforts to apply the Iran sanctions to the blocking regulation. And this will be the European Commission saying, hey, not only do European firms not have to obey these American laws, but we're actually telling you, you shouldn't. And there are some caveats, right? If, uh, if a company determines it's really detrimental to them to not obey U.S. law in this case, you know, they can go ahead and make a more blocking regulation. But it's mostly a political threat because, well, the EU can say, listen, European courts aren't going to recognize American claims or aren't going to recognize American efforts to uh, constrain trade between European firms and Iran. There's not much that European courts can do when push comes to shove. Let me just illustrate a quick, a quick example. One of the uh, you know, pivotal pieces of, uh, of legislation that um, the United States has used is the, the 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, where uh, a, there was a, a text was added that basically allowed the president to um, deny any foreign firm any foreign financial firm, the ability to open a, a bank account with an American financial firm if they did business with the central bank of Iran. And if they, you know, any time that you import something and, you know, you, you need to, you know, an Iranian importer needs to exchange Iranian reals for some other currency, you know, to pay their uh, supplier, chances are somewhere in that chain of financial transactions, the central bank of Iran is involved because, you know, they hold most foreign currency in Iran, that, that swap, et cetera. So this is a really big stick that the American president has. You know, if you facilitated uh, an Iranian real transaction, we can deny you the ability to open up a bank account in the United States, which is really going to hinder your ability to uh, conduct U.S. dollar transactions or get access to um, the U.S. banking sector. And there were even threats to extend this rule to other central banks if those transactions that they made with the Central Bank of Iran had anything to do with oil or, or gas sales. So that's a pretty big, scary threat if you do any business in U.S. dollars or any business in the United States, and most multinational firms do. The EU can say, well, you know what, we're imposing the blocking regulation. We're going to tell firms, ignore the Americans. Are they actually going to, is, uh, for example, the Journal of Insurance Firm Alliance, who announced they're going to draw down their operations and run, are they actually going to, you know, take that bet that the EU will stop the Americans from blocking them out of the, uh, the, the U.S. financial? I mean, it's a pretty scary bet to take, because if you're wrong, the consequences 
We'll have more with Dr. Simon Palomar after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. We started the process. Uh, I believe we are on the right track. Now, it, a lot depends on what we can do within the next few weeks. Uh, the high representative will make a statement on behalf of all of us, and I believe it's a good start. We're not there. We're beginning the process and we need to receive those guarantees. We will see how best we can move forward. That was Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif after meeting with European counterparts on May 15th. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, since the announcement of U.S. withdrawal, discussions have been ongoing with the remaining signatories to salvage the Iran nuclear deal. But in an economic order so tied to the United States, meeting Iranian demands is a tall order. In light of this, Dr. Palomar and I continued our conversation by discussing the possible role of non-EU countries in preserving the Iran nuclear deal. You had mentioned earlier um, Russia and China, so a couple of non-EU signatories uh, to this to this agreement, also uh, large players in the international scene uh, regardless. Looking at what's happening now with U.S. withdrawal from from the Iran nuclear deal, um, I think there can be some parallels uh, drawn to the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris uh, Climate Agreement in the sense that it has created a vacuum where once there was U.S. leadership, now there is clearly none and there's no appetite for it with the current administration. Does the U.S. withdrawal from this agreement um, create an opportunity for Russia or even China to fill this vacuum and take on more of a role as a, as a world power? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And it's one that's been on the minds of a lot of people, a lot of uh, people who think about these issues. I would say that you have to look at, you know, what's the specific issue we're talking about? I think, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, when it comes to the Paris Agreement, climate change uh, action, there might actually be an argument there. I would suspect, though, that, you know, in this case, you know, with uh, with the United States trying to reimpose these things on Iran, there's a lot less that Russia or China or France or the whole EU can do to take that, that leadership role, um, simply because, you know, the advantage that the U.S. has over these other countries is it's the role of the U.S. dollar in global commodity markets for one. I mean... Iran has been trying to set up a, 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 a euro-denominated contract for oil in the Iranian oil force for years. They see some action there. And China has tried to play around with um, NIMBY-denominated oil contracts, but there isn't really a, a, enough of a market there yet that wants to do those transactions in their currency. So the U.S. still has that ability to uh, exert a lot of influence over who sells oil simply by denying by denying both suppliers and purchasers access to U.S. dollars if they want to, because that's still the, the currency that oil is priced in. So there's that, you know, the fact that the U.S. dollar more broadly, it's still the world's de facto reserve currency. You know, even if most, even if many countries move to floating rates, 
system and whatnot. Uh, having U.S. having a big hefty chunk of U.S. dollars on your central bank balance sheet, that ability to to exchange your domestic currency for U.S. dollars to underpin your uh, to underpin your, your ma- some of your macroeconomic policies. I mean that that's crucial. It's crucial for some of the countries. And again, losing access to those markets is scary. And the United States is still 24 percent of the global of global GDP. It's still the biggest economy in the world. So, you know, Russia and China and others can try to take leadership on on this role, but it's going to be hard for them because they simply can't offer um, to firm, they can't offer firms what the United States can, and the amount of U.S. dollar liquidity that those two countries can offer, the, the size of their domestic markets, they just they pale compared to the United States. And that's really why the U.S. has been able to push this policy. So they're, they're asking countries and firms, you know, do business with Iran or do business with us. You don't get to choose both. And that's going to make it very hard for uh, Russia, China, others to to wholesale save this deal and demonstrate that leadership where, um, where the United States used to be. What now, about, that doesn't mean they can't do some, but it's hard. What about non-signatories to to the nuclear deal? Um, countries such as Canada, for example, obviously not involved at the the negotiating table per se. Does this does this open an opportunity for non-signatory countries? Um, perhaps not to not to take a large role, but an opportunity to take some kind of of leadership role, um, if they if they in the case of Canada, for example, appear to be in, in favor of the deal staying in place. You know, that's it's an interesting question. You know, my first instinct is probably not. I mean, there's probably not a, not much that Canada can do to, to step in directly to you know, convince the Iranians to stay in or to convince the Americans to rethink it. However, if we go a little bit beyond, you know, the immediate short term, you know, one of the big, big messy challenges that American withdrawal is posing is, you know, what does this mean for the future of of European-American relations, right? Does this further undermine uh, NATO? Does this undermine this this almost 70 yeah, 70 years now of transatlantic cooperation on trade, on defense, on monetary policy, and and does it you know it make um, any any negotiations on other issues between the Europeans and Americans more difficult in the future? There might be a, a role there for Canada because we got clear interest on both sides of the Atlantic. The United States isn't going away anytime soon, regardless of who is president. Uh, good relations with the United States is always going to be, you know, at least probably in my lifetime, the first priority of any Canadian prime minister. Um, good relations with Europe will be second or third. You know, it'll, it'll vary a bit, but there certainly could be a role there because we have so much at stake. We've designed so much of our trade policy, our defense policy, our foreign policy, on this assumption that Europe and the United States will basically be on the same page. There might be a role there too for Canada to mediate, or at least make it clear that even if you know the consensus is breaking down on Iran and Europe and the United States can't work together on Iran, it's critical.
don't let that bleed over into other areas and you know, poison the broader relationship. We'll conclude our conversation with Dr. Simon Palomar after a final break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. I just spoke to President Moon and explained uh, what was taking place with respect to the three gentlemen. And President Moon of South Korea was very, very happy to hear it. He likewise has been incredibly helpful. And uh, we very much look forward to having the meeting between the United States and North Korea, and that'll be uh, announced over the next couple of days. That was U.S. President Donald Trump discussing plans for a bilateral summit with North Korea. Now, given the magnitude of a possible summit between the two countries, and in the context of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, Dr. Palmer and I concluded our conversation by discussing the impact of the withdrawal on negotiations both with North Korea and beyond. Looking to the future, um, when we talk about the U.S. withdrawal, I think naturally a lot of people are asking uh, how this will uh, affect uh, another summit uh, or, or uh, negotiations with another country that that is potentially coming up. Um, with what is happening right now with North Korea, the discussion of having a potential summit. Um, let's put aside for a second the fact that that there has been some change in posturing in, in the last few days, because um, we'll come to that in a second. But uh, kind of broadly, how do you think the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal will impact efforts to negotiate with North Korea on its nuclear program from a legitimacy point of view? Yeah. I mean, the simple answer there is that it's got to be on the minds of North Korean policymakers. Now, they might come to their own that, you know, like, like we started this conversation, that, well, Donald Trump didn't like the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action because it was brokered by Barack Obama, and he doesn't like Barack Obama, and that's part of the reason he got rid of it. And on the other hand, we reached out directly to President Trump, he accepted our invitation that He's got a lot riding on personally, so he'll find a way to make it happen. You know, that that might be what the North Koreans are thinking right now, and I kind of suspect that that kind of is what they're thinking, um, especially with, uh, you know, this some of these threats they issued you know, last week that, you know, we might, in fact, uh, not have this summit at all. I think they believe that, you know, President Trump's pretty committed to this. He's invested a lot of personal political capital. He wants to, you know, walk away with a foreign policy win here, something that he can, something that he can hold up, you know, before midterm elections, or at least point to as ongoing. But there's got to be, you know, in the back of their mind, that non that if the Americans withdraw from one nuclear the country that, you know, for most, for most purposes, really was living up to their end of the bargain. And why won't they do the same with us? So, you know, how seriously do we take American promises? You know, are they conditional? Are they really promises? Should we plan to 
we say we will do a freeze on our eleventh activities. They'll they'll give us some sanctions or issue with them, but eh, sooner or later they will decide this isn't in their favor. So we really shouldn't worry about compliance too much. Maybe we should shoot from day one, try to cover it up. You know, those are the sorts of debates I wouldn't be surprised if they're having right now, because it, it does have to affect it does have to affect the calculators. Right? Um, it would be very different, I think, if Iran had clearly been violating and you know deliberately flagrantly violating the CPOA. But right now it has to at least have the North Korean you know, negotiating team thinking about, you know, we have to have that plan. We have to be prepared for the fact that we might be dealing with a, an unreliable negotiator here, an unreliable deal maker and and we have to be ready for talks to break down, for the Americans to renege on their promises, and that uh, we should essentially keep some kind of breakout plan or alternative, you know, uh, fallback plan to a negotiated settlement. We have to keep that in our minds. So fair to say then that some of the, I don't know if waffling is the right term, but some of the posturing that's happened in recent days about maybe not having a summit on June 12th, um, fair to say that that has been impacted or, or that that has been a that has been an impact of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. You know, it, it, that's that's hard to pin it to any one thing because uh, you know the North Koreans last week they they pushed back pretty hard against John Bolton's suggestion that uh, that this was kind of an Iran, uh, a Libya type situation that they kind of you know pack up uh, North Korean's weapons program, ship it out of the country, and then maybe the U.S. will release 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 them from some sanctions. They pushed back against that. They pushed back against uh, American claims that, you know, that North Korea had agreed to essentially unilaterally denuclearize. They pushed back against a lot of things. But, you know, it's not too far-fetched to think that they're pushing back against American uh, policy on Iran. Because it's worth remembering back on May May 8th that the announcement was made that the U.S. was drawing from the JCPOA, um, the president gave the statement that, you know, this is going to convince the North Koreans that I'm serious. This is sending the right message that I promised to dismantle the JCPOA, so I did so. And that it's really going to send them the the right message that I'm, I'm, I'm a serious negotiator, I'm a tough negotiator, and follow through with what I, I promised on. Well, the North Koreans last week, they kind of demonstrated that, well, you know, we can push back, too. We can send our signals as well. And that, you know, we're not in the same situation as Iran. We have a nuclear weapon. They didn't. You know, you would relieve. They have. You had lifted sanctions on them. You still have sanctions on us. So there's only so much more you can sanction us if you want to continue to sanction us. And we have something that you want, which namely is is a foreign policy victory, the, the, the uh, ability to go back to the United States and say, look, I sat down with Kim Jong-un, and even if I didn't denuclearize North Korea, I made more progress on this file than any of my predecessors did. North Koreans are, I think, fairly clearly saying that this is not going to be, you know, a walk in the park. That we can push back, too, and you want to send signals? We'll send signals as well to demonstrate our results. So I certainly think that... Again, what the precise issue was that prompted that, that North Korean statement last week, hard to say. But again, this is a, that U.S. 
non-proliferation policy generally, and Iran specifically, probably weighed fairly heavily in that decision. So if we think more broadly um, about the U.S. as an as a negotiator, as an honest broker uh, in international politics, given what you just said about about the argument about Donald Trump, you know, he'll do what he says. Um, so if he if he gives a thumbs up on something, you know, he'll follow through on it. Do you think that the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, perhaps in combination with the Paris Agreement, does that have any negative impacts, long term impacts on the U.S.'s stature? Uh, as a as a partner that you can uh, negotiate with on long term deals. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one issue that you know uh, that I've had, one challenge I've had doing this now, that all you've had, you probably heard it yourself, and you may have seen it in other countries, is trying to figure out, you know, how much short term damage is this doing? Because there's almost consensus out there that that these decisions by the American president, in the short run, they do damage America's stature, that they make it. They make the United States look unreliable. It doesn't matter if the, the president saying, look, I promised these things on the campaign trail, and I'm doing them. There, instead, there tends to be generally an understanding international law, and even when it comes to non-legal international agreements, that if your predecessor made an agreement, you try in good faith to uphold it. You know, there's a legal principle to that effect that, you know, agreements must be kept. But there's also a principle that's just general, even handshakes. You try to live up to your predecessor's handshake. So in the short run, yeah, Donald Trump and withdrawing from things that, agreements that other countries entered into in good faith makes this administration look, you know, very self-interested to the point of that, that it harms America. I mean, all governments are self-interested, but there's kind of a point at which uh, you know, doing things simply for you know, domestic political purposes, undermining what was otherwise a good international arrangement, that starts to add up and damage the reputation. But one thing I have noticed over the last, uh, you know, what has it been now, about 18 months, 17 months of this administration, is that there is there are a lot of... Uh, working in foreign ministries, uh, working in governments around the world, we're kind of assuming that this is temporary, or at least we're hoping that this is temporary, that this isn't, that Donald Trump doesn't represent a fundamental change in American political culture, but is really uh, a unique product of, you know, some economic tension, some social tension, uh, you know, slow rebound from global financial crisis, and a few other things. And that we probably, you know, won't see another Donald Trump once he's done his four or eight years in office. That's not to say that the United States won't create, you know, more populists or whatnot, but that Donald Trump doesn't represent some sort of, you know, new normal in U.S. politics. So as long as people remain confident about that, and I think, you know, yes, the next six, two to six years, they could be rough. Uh, there could be continued tensions between Canada and the United States on trade, between Europe and the United States on, on climate change and on Middle East policy. Uh, there could be uh, continued tensions between uh, China and the United States on <laughs> trade, climate, South China Sea, pick whatever you want. 
but that, uh, you know, this too shall pass. We just need to make our way through it. Um, I'll only finish that thought with what one more caveat is that, you know, the more that the United States seems to withdraw from all these commitments, seems to withdraw from that role as a, a, an honest broker and a global leader, then I think the more people start to suspect that maybe, in fact, you know, the damage will be longer lasting and that, that maybe, you know, our, our estimates that Donald Trump is, is an aberration and not the normal could be wrong. But, you know, we're not there yet. And, uh, I think that is where we that is where we will end this conversation, but certainly uh, not where we will uh, end our spectating. I think of of this because when we deal with something, of course, uh, as serious as a nuclear program, uh, it's something that impacts not only the countries that are signatories, but but all countries uh, around the world. Um, so with that. Dr. Simon Palomar, thank you so much for joining us on Policy Talks. We really do appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. We would like to acknowledge the support of our partners at iAffairs Canada, an online media hub based at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. IAffairs engages the diverse international affairs community in Canada and around the world to produce policy research and recommendations on foreign policy issues with a specific focus on students, emerging scholars, and young professionals. Visit them at iaffairscanada.com to learn more. This episode was also made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association, which represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students at Carleton University. To learn more, you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Samran Roy, Hamza Haddad, Stephen Cook, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.